0: By this time, women everywhere knew the name Chippendales. Across the globe, studs and cuffs and collars were delighting tons of screaming audiences. But behind the scenes, a different kind of screaming was going on. The owner and the creative director were both fighting for control until one was willing to cross the ultimate line. This week's episode is The Chippendales Murders, Part 2. Well, we got another piece of Chippendales merch.
1: <laughs> got my Chippendales cards in the mail. Oh, they have been used, too. And that sounded <laughs> gross. Uh, they just are
0: they're worn. They're 1984, so which is right in the time we're, we're starting in today. Mm-hmm. It's like 1984, the time when it was the rocket ship taken off to the moon.
1: I went through and looked at all of them. And, <laughs> man, there's some guys on there who didn't make the calendar, but they yeah. made the cards. So if you're looking to... Get more of the coiffed hair, slick body, lots of chest hair, (laughs) tiny little panties. (laughs) Go to eBay and pick yourself up a deck. There's hunks, 52 hunks,
0: two jokers, and the jokers aren't faces. It's just cartoon jokers. I was like, all right, well, that's a missed opportunity. They
1: should have had the guys wear a little jester hat. Like a fun wacky yeah. little
0: hat. I learned in my reading of the self-published memoir of the alleged third son of Steve Bandry or Steve Banerjee that they would film, they would shoot the calendar at Marlon Brando's private island.
1: Oh, <laughs> so wow! So they were connected with him too. Oh, S- Steve spared no expense. I guess. I guess not. Uh, what a weird place that would have been to be on the set of that shoot on Marlon Brando's Island.
0: And I just, he wasn't there that we know of, but I just like to imagine Marlon Brando just smoking a cigar, watching it (laughs) all happen. Just nodding
1: like, all right, yeah. In the, in the jungle and apocalypse now style, just watching (laughs) from the background, perhaps. He's hiding. Perhaps he was. Well, by now you may have watched all of the A&E series we've been talking about or the ID series. So you could have all sorts of knowledge. Maybe you've ordered a calendar. Maybe you watched the unboxing video of Heather revealing the calendar to me on our Patreon, which I watched earlier today. I was there and I still laughed because the, (laughs) the editing is very funny. and It's just these, the 80s, how our tastes have changed. That's all I'll say.
0: Most definitely. The more I learn how to use Adobe Premiere, the happier I am. Like when I zo- zoomed in on the what we deemed the wean drip. Oh, if you man. check out Mr., uh, I think it's Mr. July. Mm-hmm. It's wild stuff, but I figured out how to make the screen zoom in. So I scanned the calendar because some people were like, where is it? I said, you guys, I had to sit here and scan page by page (laughs) of the calendar because I didn't want to just have you get the version where it's held up and blurry. Y'all needed the HD full quality, which now, you know, I have those saved on my phone. So where are they going? Uh
1: (laughs) That's one of the more tame things that's probably on your phone (laughs) with your search history. So did I tell you, George, my father-in-law gave me a mug for Christmas that says, please don't be alarmed about my browsing history. I'm a writer, not a serial oh. killer or something <laughs> like that. Like, it accurate. is very accurate. But
0: Yeah, between the show and then what we just ask each other, like the other day when we were watching Grizzly Man together. And I just went, is a fox a dog? <laughs> and I just asked Google.
1: And it is, turns out. It's my favorite part, though. Tommy, who had not been watching this with us, just happens to walk in the room right as you asked that. And he was like, yeah, foxes are dogs. Just walked out and then walked walk, and then walk back to his video game, whatever he was doing. So, uh, yeah, Heather had never seen Grizzly Man and I was like, buckle up. It's a wild ride. What a time, y'all. <laughs> what a time. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about some different types of grizzly men in this episode. <sighs> That chest hair. Oh yeah, lots of chest hair. This one involves, we're getting into some more seedy and nefarious activity too.
0: Yeah, last time we, you know, chuckle, yuck it up, laughing. this one is very serious and in fact uh, get into a lot of legalities there, especially Mm -hmm. once we start making, wheeling and dealing with the federal government. That's nothing more legal than that.
1: Nobody ever wants to be in that position. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Upon the opening of the new Chippendales in Los Angeles, Steve Banerjee became increasingly paranoid about competition. Newly married to his wife, Irene, in September of 1984, he was unable to fully enjoy married bliss. He had signed away his rights to a possible future touring show on a napkin to Nick DeNoia in November of '84. so growing the L.A. Club became his primary focus. But the more famous Chippendells became the more competitors began to emerge. A club located not far from Chippendales called The Red Onion began its own male dance review. Steve called his old buddy Ray Cologne for another arson job. Cologne reluctantly agreed and recruited two men, including Gilberto Rivera Lopez, a.k.a. Louis Lopez, to set this fire.
0: And at the time, Ray Cologne was saying... Why you can't burn down every male strip show in no. because even if you burn down every one in LA, there could be one in Calabasas or Sacramento or Las Vegas or Arizona. Like, he's just like, how far is it gonna go?
1: Also, if you're the only one that's not getting burned down and all of a sudden 10 male reviews are getting burned down, it seems a little sus. Yeah. Setting fire to the Red Onion on December 28, 1984, went slightly better than the Moody's fire, but not by much. A night janitor heard the Molotov cocktail come through the entryway window and extinguished the flames after only slight damage to the carpet. Steve was frustrated that this fire was also a failure, but moved his focus back on generating more revenue. And this
0: is is Steve's absolute doesn't give a fuck attitude. He drove to the Red Onion in the morning to check and see that it was burned down God. and was pissed off when he saw that they were they had rolls of carpet and they were just installing new carpet and it was going to open for the lunch crowd at like noon or whatever. And they were, you know, it's like, hey, what's going on? Oh, just a little fire. We're going to open regular. No worries, though. And so he was like,
1: not again? I know. It's this weird disconnect where maybe if you're not the one that's actually physically there for the crime that you can kind of distance yourself from it mentally and emotionally to where i don't know because he's he's already planning some fucked up stuff it's about to get even worse but he just seems like this nice accountant guy just going about his day when he's a very sinister man And I think he put on that nice accountant
0: guy front for everybody because it was, it would be kind of disarming. But there's reports, I mean, behind the scenes that he would just straight up fire people without, I mean, basically the DJ in the disco booth, they talked about how he was super popular and like women would want to come up and like flirt with him, almost like he was a dancer to the point where he would, I mean, he was still spinning records, but would get distracted. And Steve just came up and was like, well, if you're not spinning records, you're fired. And the DJ's like, oh, OK, well, it's 10. So like, I'll finish my shift. He's like, no, leave right now. Someone else will run it like where you're just trying to flex just to flex. Yeah. And it, that doesn't even make sense as a business person. And eventually the customers were like, we all want, you know, Kevin, the DJ back. And they were all irritated and they, you know, rehired him. He had to acquiesce. But I think he would he struggled with this looking like kind of a uh, doughy, soft, mm-hmm. unassuming to want to be like, no, I'm the mogul. I'm Hugh Hefner. I'm the impresario wearing the suits trying. Trying to, like, flex and maybe just, like, almost trying to be a mafioso. I'm like, you're not a mafia
1: guy. I mean, he was the total opposite of Nick personality-wise and looks-wise, pretty much every dude that worked there. So I think that there was some little man syndrome, as they call it, going on, for sure. Definitely. On the East Coast, with Napkin in hand granting him the rights to the Chippendales touring profits, Nick set about getting the show on the road. First, he had dancers from the New York location perform in a club in Philadelphia. Around 90 miles from New York City, it was technically a touring show in Nick's eyes, meaning he kept 50% of the profits. He then booked another successful show at a casino in Atlantic City. On the heels of these wins, Nick then began booking the dancers at other locations all across the U.S. So here's a legal question for Your Honor, Judge Christie:
0: What constitutes a touring show is 90 miles far enough from a centralized location of a club to be a satellite show of the New York club or a touring show subject to a profit share with Nick DeNoia.
1: Interesting question. Well, one, I think we have to address even though Nick did this napkin deal where he got Steve to sign away in perpetuity the rights to the touring show, he was still giving him 50% of the profits. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was a reasonable guy. And I think you you understand, you see Steve reacting to something as simple as a DJ with like, you're fired, get out, never come back again. Mm -hmm. While Nick, I think, was not an idiot and was very good at planning entertainment and being strategic about his career so i'm sure he had this back pocket idea of you know his alternate the u.s mail we deliver troop but you know why would you bite the hand that's currently feeding you so i'm sure if it's a difference in you get fired and you have to go to court and litigate over this napkin or giving steve 50 percent after profit or after expenses you go all right well this is a better deal for everybody
1: yeah especially since Steve's technically not really doing anything with the Mm -hmm. touring show. It's just the name. Yeah. To answer your question, I might argue that anything, any show that doesn't happen at the main stage location would be the touring show, even if it's in the same city.
0: And that's what Nick argued that. And he's like, look, Philly is 90 miles, Atlantic City. You know, this isn't. Up the street at a different venue mm-hmm. in New York, you know, this is far enough away. Steve's argument, and this is all according to Deadly Dance, uh, one of the books in our show notes, the whole argument was well, you're now cannibalizing the market of New York City, that women might drive from Philly or Atlantic City to see the show in New York. And now you're taking those audiences away from the club that I get 100% of the profits at.
1: I could see that. However, I think if you're selling out the main stage location all the time, it behooves you to maybe have a touring show, even also in New York City, because the women that can't get into that, now you're now you're booking another show the same night. You can even like book multiple shows in a night that way, for sure.
0: Yeah, t- double dip. And there's also going to be people that are like, I'm not driving to New York City. I mm-hmm. got to park. It's a whole thing. Uh, I don't need to see them burly chests that much. Like I'm fine staying home. But this is almost as if a deal like this should be made in a document where you have a defined term as what a touring show is is it more than 50 miles from the most you know from a standard location and you define these things although that would be a lot of napkins it's like a whole <laughs> container of
1: napkins got get a, a paper a roll of paper towels to do this deal <laughs> exactly
0: the brawny man is my lawyer
1: <laughs> hey if you have to have well no I think I'm going Mr. Clean. no I'm going brawny you're right Right. Brawny
0: man can be a lawyer, and he could probably be in the show.
1: Yeah, he could. I feel like Mr. Clean in a suit, though, in a courtroom would be fun.
0: Mr. Clean. No, I'm not going to say it. It's dirty. What? <laughs> I feel like Mr. Clean would be into like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of shit.
1: Yeah, he seems he's. I feel like Mr. Clean is a defense attorney
0: and a Type A, and he's got a room. He's got a red room. Damn. It's all consensual, but but he's there's a room. There's a, there's room. a room.
1: Yeah. Is that what they called it in Fifty Shades of Grey? The Red Room?
0: I think that's what they called it, yeah.
1: They didn't call it the Gray Room?
0: They called it the Red Room. His name was Gray. I think it would have been two on the nose.
1: Oh, I've never read it. I've never seen it. So Fifty Shades of Grey is referring to this man has a lot of personality traits. There's a lot of different... (laughs) He wears a lot of hats.
0: Or they're trying to choose a carpet because that's a lot of different shades of gray. (laughs) And I've noticed...
1: Well, whatever it was, Mr. Clean definitely has that room also. Those vibes. Mm -hmm. But I would like to see Brawny on the prosecution side and Mr. Clean as a defense attorney. And I'm the judge and you're the bailiff. And now we have another show we got to write. Double banging those gavels all night long, as you (laughs) say. Double banging the gavels, double banging the attorney's. Hey, who knows what can happen? They're fictional characters. It's not cheating. (laughs) City after city, women showed up to see the famous Chippendales dancers they had seen on TV. The tour was a hit and brought in tons of cash, reportedly over $80,000 per week, which Nick and Steve split 50-50 after expenses. Nick was frustrated that he put in all the work and only got 50% of the profits. Steve was frustrated. He had given away what was proving to be a lucrative revenue stream in the business. Steve also became suspicious, believing that Nick was inflating the expenses and keeping more money for himself. I d- uh, we have seen nothing to prove that. I would say if I was Nick, I don't know that I, I mean, I might do that.
0: Well, it would be a good way to go about it, but I think he – I mean, the reports from, like, Bruce Nahin and other people that – because it wasn't just Steve alone running Chippendales. You know, he had managers and Mm -hmm. accountants and bookkeepers and people like that were – if Nick was doing something like that, it would get caught because also on the road, Nick wasn't the only one on the road. They had associate producers and tour managers. And then also the guys were out there, mm-hmm. you know, the
1: dancers were with them. There's a lot and of expenses to taking that type of review on the road for sure.
0: I want to say it was something like 17 dancers on per show. And then at one point, this at the, initially it was just one touring crew of 17 dancers, but then you realize there's an unlimited amount of guys. You can hit an unlimited amount of cities. It's not yeah. like, you know, you're going to see Lady Gaga and she has to be at every single show. It's just, yeah, it's like the Harlem Globetrotters, right? Mm-hmm. You ha- it's a team, it's a crew you can see and it's kind of interchangeable. So, He, I think it would, in in Nick's best interest, I'm like, I can't imagine having access to this extreme amount of money that you would jeopardize that of like trying to penny pinch or like Mm -hmm. trying to like slowly siphon it off. I I think he was just more calculated than Mm -hmm. that. And I think he had better integrity than that.
1: Since he couldn't get out of his napkin deal, Steve set about touring his own Chippendale show and cutting Nick out of the profits in violation of their agreement. Nick then asked for a share of the merchandising revenue, but Steve balked at the request and once again reminded Nick he was just an employee, not an owner. This seems very stupid to me because if you are already trying to not go to court because of this, the initial napkin deal, to then start doing illegal and shady shit that violates that napkin deal, now you are going to go to court. And like we've said before, a lot of stuff's going to come out in Discovery and all sorts of stuff. So now you're you're just screwing yourself.
0: Exactly, because he did not have the legal upper hand. Even Bruce Naheen has said in five different interviews, no, the napkin deal was legit. He said, I told him, I can't get you out of this. You signed a legitimate agreement. I'm sorry, the piece of paper is on it. It's like weird, but it doesn't matter. And so what we see with Steve, and it may be a personality trait, and his oldest son wrote about it in his memoir that he, he used the term like entertainment. Hollywood bled out his pores. He was all about Hollywood. He was all about the American dream. He loved anything that looked like big business. He loved Coca-Cola and Playboy and just big, like the Hollywood sign. He was very into this ideal of I think what he thought success was and if you have this Hollywood version you're like oh yeah like you know how Don Corleone does business he just fucking does business mm-hmm. I was on his private island recently shooting photos like <laughs> I can, you know what I mean like yeah. I think he he wouldn't say oh I went to business school and I got an MBA not, not that everybody has to be educated but having some sort of oh we talked about ethics like business ethics mm-hmm. and things that you shouldn't do and he didn't necessarily have that training it was amazing that he rose to the position he did you know he worked super hard But you see as he starts to lose a little bit of grasp on it, it's like, oh, well, I have to do whatever it takes. And if your example of a businessman is fucking Hugh Hefner or like Hollywood, you're willing to, of course, you're willing to like try to screw somebody over. This is like patently a violation of the agreement. Like you cannot do that.
1: Well, it's also what you see on the big screen is not legal or ethical or even correct. A lot of the time so if you're like well i know how to wheel and deal legal deals because of uh you know i watched my cousin vinnie it's like all right well but also if you go to business school you might be learning like actual terms that are used and stuff that can really help you he i think um the most successful business people are the ones that are humble enough to say look I'm not the best person to know how to do this. I don't know how to do it. So I'm going to bring in such and such. And you don't act like you're the smartest person in the room all the time because there's no way that you are. So knowing when to ask for help and to bring in experts so you don't get screwed, that's good business.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. He should have a lot of this stuff because Bruce Naheen was a 10% owner. And you ask yourself, where is Bruce? Steve Banerjee kept a whole secret like from his family. Like He kept a ton of secrets, so he just wouldn't tell his lawyer. So then you're really kneecapped as an attorney and a co-owner, You know, a minute co-owner of like, uh, you didn't ask me before you did this, and mm-hmm. that's just a danger. If he's willing to keep that many secrets, he's willing to do business that way. You're right.
1: Plans for new locations were discussed, with a group of interested investors wanting to open locations in Dallas, Denver, and several other cities across the country. The meetings were disastrous, especially when Nick and Steve were in the room together. Tensions were high, with the business partners arguing about the creative direction of the show, business decisions, and hiring matters. Steve, who suffered from a stutter, was no match for the verbose Nick, who could run circles around Steve in an argument. According to Candace Marin, an associate producer at Chippendales and close friend of Nick, Steve had no chance at all. In Deadly Dance, it was said that a meeting with the possible investors descended into chaos with Steve calling Nick a thief, and Nick telling the investors about safes full of cash that Steve kept in his home and away from the IRS. The investors walked away, and the deal was dead. Meanwhile,
0: your 10% owner, Bruce Naheen, going, you fucking idiots,
1: <laughs> you you just lost the deal no there's so much information that came out and none of it helped you it all just hurts you now you gotta answer to all this cash that you're possibly keeping that you're not paying taxes on your family doesn't know about it you've lost the the deal now and things are just more awkward between steve and nick yeah, it's a Michael Scott spider face situation.
0: You cut off your nose with spider face. I mean, that's what they're doing though. It's like they're turning on each other in a meeting where it's like, don't you know that the best thing for would be both of you shut up mm. and take the deal and take the money? But no, they were. It's just they couldn't help themselves. I mean, granted, I I think if I was called a thief, I would probably. You can't help yourself but lash back, and it wasn't just safe at his house. I mean, there's allegations that Steve kept money in other countries, that he would put it on private planes, put it I'm in other sure. states, whatever. Yeah he he did not pay. I would if I was a betting person, and I am. I bet he did not pay taxes on every penny he brought. Oh, yeah, in.
1: for no. sure, definitely. It's also, I mean, no investor wants to get involved in high stakes when you see that the two business partners can't even sit in a meeting together.
0: No, well, because what you've just told me is several liabilities. Okay, if Steve says this employee slash maybe owner of touring rights is a thief. Okay, so now I have a challenge of what else is missing from in here. And then the other guy tells you that guy has uh, issues with the IRS and paying taxes. That's a liability I'm not taking on. Plus, their behavior is deranged. I don't want to deal with all this shit. Mm -hmm. Y'all can't even get on the same page. I'd walk away too. And then again, you just lost millions more dollars than if you would have just again brought in a maybe a business mediator or brought in a lawyer or they got separate lawyers from Bruce like Steve got a new guy and Nick got a new guy and they you know they we all have our own representatives here but it was just too heated and that's what Bruce was like Bruce was like I racked up miles flying back and forth trying (laughs) to keep them from killing each other and it's I mean that's what he said because he said they were just constantly going at each other and you're like (sighs) <sighs> okay, well, I will i guess I'll fly and tell him that. Like, I'm not going to come fly out there and tell him that. You tell him to come here and say it to my face, and you're just, like, dealing almost with, like, children fighting. Yeah,
1: yeah. By 1986, Steve and Nick were barely on speaking terms. Steve continued touring his own version of the Chippendale show until Nick sued him in Los Angeles Superior Court. Court documents show Nick asked for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction, prohibiting Steve from continuing the tour without paying Nick the 50% share he was owed. Nick won. Steve was furious.
0: There it is. It's what your lawyer told you. The napkin is legitimate. And all he had to do was say, I have this agreement that says I'm entitled to this. And the court said, yep, you're right. And what then Steve just did was he just handed Nick a court order saying this napkin is legitimate. Yeah. Because he pushed it.
1: That's what, yeah, he's... He doesn't know enough to not do these things. He, he's he's mm-hmm. just thinking I'm gonna go after him for all he's worth. I don't take no. I don't back down. I'm gonna win every th- every argument. But really, winning those arguments is making you a loser because you're you're giving up a bunch of stuff you wouldn't have to otherwise.
0: Oh, for sure. And also the idea that I own Chippendales 100% completely. That used to be true, man. But the Mm. napkin, you signed it away. So he was still operating as if nobody else had a stake in it.
1: At its height, the Chippendales empire was raking in $38 million per year, according to Investigation Discovery. The touring show was sometimes making three times what the standalone clubs were making. Steve wanted all the profits for himself and to get out of the deal he made with Nick but the napkin was ironclad fed up steve asked his old friend ray cologne to do
0: the ultimate
1: to get rid of nick denoya and 38 million in
0: 1984 money is 100 million 107 million in today's dollars so it was a huge empire
1: 38 million I, is huge i mean yeah. and then you get over 100 yeah i mean that's a ton of money for sure
0: but he this just gets into backed in a corner desperation.
1: More money, more problems. We've, if Biggie taught us anything.
0: A tale as old as time. I mean, it's abject greed really just it gets, it fuzzies your vision. Like Money not
1: people do crazy shit. For and real. From small things, like in will readings, to when you get into huge business dealings like this, it's, it's, like you said it clouds your brain it it makes people just behave in ways they would never otherwise i mean i think it if we want to get into the nitty-gritty it's tied to like the importance of wealth in you know society and everything and just like how the economies run in general but when you get to the point where there's this much money involved bad bad choices start to get made Cologne once again enlisted the help of Gilberto Rivera Lopez, also known as Louis, who had helped Ray set the fire at the Red Onion. According to the book Deadly Dance, Louis had a $300 per day heroin addiction that made him desperate and willing to do anything for cash. Louis agreed to fly with Cologne to New York City and kill Nick. And that's what the Deadly Dance author said, you know,
0: Ray Cologne at first was like, okay, I'll set the fire, the first fire. And it didn't go very well when, in fact, he wasn't really going to set it. You know, he's going to keep the money, and then Steve starts pressuring him. Then he tries to set the second fire, knowing that Steve has mentioned, you know, he has ties to very important people. Well, and this time, someone says, "Uh, I want you to get you, either you or get somebody to fly across the country, and I want you to murder my business partner. You're like, oh, Ray Cologne said, oh, you're willing to pay me to do that to kill your business partner. Who are you
1: willing to pay to kill me? Exactly. In the spring of 1987, Nick was on tour with associate producer Candace Myron and a troupe of the male dancers in Indianapolis when he decided to fly back to New York early to conduct some business. On the afternoon of April 7th, 1987, Nick and his assistant were working in the Chippendales New York office. According to Candace, she and Nick were on the phone discussing the debut of Nick's new non-Chippendales dance squad, U.S. Mail We Deliver. Myron told The Sun. So I'm on the phone with Nick talking about the contracts, talking about the roadshow, and suddenly
0: he goes, I gotta go. Click. Hangs up on me. The timing is quite right. I have to think this is the moment he saw somebody walk into the office with a gun in his hand.
1: Louis Lopez had entered the Chippendales office, and now... And asked Nick's assistant, Are you Nick? The assistant told the man no and gestured towards Nick's office. Louis then went into the restroom to wait. The assistant went to the restroom as well. According to retired FBI agent Scott Gariola, that's when Louis took the opportunity and walked into Nick's office. There, Nick was behind his desk, alone. Louis asked, Are you Nick? When Nick replied that he was, Louis told him, Then you're a dead man and shot Nick in his face, just below his left eye. From the bathroom, Nick's assistant heard the loud bang of a gun and the slamming of an exit door. When he ran out, he found Nick dead in his office. Nick's assistant called police immediately, but it was too late. There was no saving Nick, and Louis had successfully made it down the stairwell and out into the street, headed out of state. The NYPD was stumped as to who would kill Nick, they questioned dancers and Nick's friends, family, and loved ones, but came up with nothing. Everyone had a wonderful relationship with Nick, even despite his sometimes intense personality. The only one who didn't was Steve Banerjee, but he had been in L.A. at the time of the slaying with a solid alibi. All they had was a description of Louis Lopez, a thin Hispanic male with a bald head. With no other leads, Nick's case went cold. Nick's family sold his touring rights to Steve for a reported $1 million.
0: And when Scott Gariola, which shout out to one of our listeners who pointed out that Scott Garriola gave an extensive interview on the FBI Retired Case File Project uh, podcast, which was very fascinating. But, you know, the host said, well, why would his family sell such a valuable thing for so little? And Agent Gariola said they were not entertainment people. They weren't showbiz people. And they didn't know how to manage that ownership or own it or have it. And they just thought, you know, cut ties, be done with it. Uh, Did and they, know,
1: they knew, though, of Nick's kind of tumultuous relationship with Steve.
0: Yeah and I'm sure you know if all you hear is god the guy that runs this place is a fucking asshole he's awful he makes my life miserable you're like well I don't want to work with him yeah. I just want to get this value, you know get this money and get out and you know it's not like it was a publicly traded company you knew it was famous but I don't know that they knew it was 38 million dollars a year famous and yeah. you know a good chunk of that coming out of the touring uh revenue but yeah the this is cold-blooded that he just oh, yeah. he walked in the building it's extremely creepy that walked into this restroom area to where the assistant then walked in behind him and realized, oh, now's my move. He's by himself, like didn't want to fight, didn't want to struggle and went and took the opportunity and then went to a like a holiday inn on I think on Long Island and waited a couple days and then flew out. But at the holiday inn, made some phone calls back to his family in California, thus leaving a trail of a trail. where he had been. So again, Steve did not hire the top-notch criminal masterminds, he was trying to get these results for as little as possible.
1: I think if it had been a criminal mastermind, either they would not have gone when the assistant was there or the assistant would have also been killed because you have someone that clearly saw the person, even talked to him, and, you know, so you've left a a witness. They're going to assume, okay, well yeah, this is the guy that did it based on who came in and the noises I heard and everything. So it's, and you're, I'm glad that that dude didn't also get shot. You're absolutely
0: right. That existence of that assistant will also come into play as they go about trying to catch these folks. Sinisterhood will be right back. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I try to feel like my best self when I do my morning routine. I do some reading. I have breakfast. Try to do a little meditation every day. And that time that I take to spend with myself, I never felt like I had permission to it. But honestly, my therapist at BetterHelp said, you are worth it. It's worth it to have that time.
1: Sometimes you just need that affirmation, that uh, permission from someone else to to give you that peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're at your best, you can do great things. Sometimes life gets you bogged down and you may feel overwhelmed or like you're not showing up in the way that you want to.
0: Working with a therapist can help you get closer to the best version of you because when you feel empowered, you're more prepared to take on everything life throws at you. And I always say you're the reason why I got into therapy because of your openness about it. And I appreciate that and will forever.
1: Thank you. I always feel better after having talked to my therapist, just having a sounding board and being able to like work things out and get a different perspective. I've never walked away from a therapy session thinking, man, I wish I hadn't done that.
0: Well, thank you. And I didn't know where to get started, so I'm glad we work with BetterHelp because that helped me get my foot in the door. Absolutely.
1: It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma.
0: If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional
1: charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com/sinister today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/sinister. Without Nick, Chippendales continued the success it had gained, but without Nick's vision, the creativity stagnated, and soon competing troops became more prominent. In 1991, another all-male dance troupe began making waves. Called Adonis, former dancers from Chippendales joined this new show, including Reed Scott, who had worked in the L.A. Chippendales location almost from the beginning, as well as a choreographer and a touring producer from Chippendales, Steve White and Mike Fullington. Seeing how successful Adonis was on the road, especially now with his former partner in charge of touring gone and his dancers leaving for rival troops— steve was again desperate
0: well it's like we said earlier it's like whack-a-mole you can burn down the ones closest to you but it doesn't stop somebody in milwaukee from starting you know like you can't run around the the world
1: it's also kind of a bitch move because you don't get the right to be the only show in town just be better than others and make people want to come to your shows more than others Damn, that's a good point. I mean, you
0: worrying about competition is probably one of the easiest ways to lose sight of yourself and what you want to do and what you want to be. And we see very quickly it starts to crumble. He lost sight of instead of saying, okay, well, I caused the death of Nick Dinoia, which that's just an undoable and it's so not worth it. You know, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, it's a person's life, a person that was loved by his family, by his friends, whose life was lost for money. I mean, it really Mm -hmm. was money at the end of the day and control and power. But even if you say, you know, if Steve is in this mindset of I don't care, power, money, success at all costs, then okay, well, what made you successful before? Oh, having a really brilliant, creative visionary, then you need to go hire somebody else. Now, is it hard to hire someone when you're like, listen, yeah, our last choreographer was unceremoniously murdered in our office. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to be difficult to hire people because it's much like you said with the fires where all oh, these fire these fires in LA, but, you know, Chippendales is never the one that burned.
1: Yeah. Hmm. And now you see, oh, the creative director of Chippendales went wound up uh, executed. I mean i don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to start putting the puzzle pieces together to think maybe steve banner she is behind some of this because a lot of uh spooky nefarious shit is going on over there yeah
0: and meanwhile ray cologne is pretty much the only person that knows yeah what's going on and why i mean i'm sure louis lopez you read the newspaper and you're like oh that's the person i killed hmm who knew
1: yeah Steve turned once more to his old friend Ray Cologne and asked him to take out the former Chippendales dancers who had left him for Adonis. Again, Cologne was hesitant, but knowing what Steve was capable of, he eventually agreed. They hatched a plan to stick the dancers with needles full of cyanide while they were on tour in England. Since Louis Lopez was in jail on narcotics charges, Cologne needed to recruit a new killer. And the whole
0: time I was, you know, we've been researching this. I'm like, why would Ray Colon go along with all this? he was in the military and then he got discharged from the military and there was some uh, question around his discharge if it had to do with a criminal activity that he did. He had these kind of like loose mafia connections but he also had this desire to be a police officer and he couldn't quite ever get hired to be a police officer so he kind of kept failing and so he ended up like managing apartments here and there and like kind of you know ne'er-do-well well then he gets his systolic kidney dis- disease where his basically he knew based on it's a genetic disease members of his family he knew he wasn't probably going to live much into his 50s and so when you think okay well my life is going to be a lot shorter i got to do whatever i can make as much money to take care of my family and kind of do whatever it takes to because at first i was just like he's why are you going along with this but i think steve saw a person that was lesser than him you know made less money had less power and now was afraid of him because he knew what he was capable of and just knew he could keep going back to the well and keep and i'm not saying ray Colon was not a bad also a bad guy like you know go to the cops much sooner right but i do see like oh that's why i think he went along with it so many times that he did was that you almost like have nothing to lose like you know you're gonna die
1: yeah i imagine as ray you also see This guy's willing to do anything to get ahead. He has zero morals and ethics and doesn't seem to have a conscience. So if he's willing to do this to all these other people, I mean, if I don't agree to kill this person, then he's going to have me killed. Oh, easily. By this time in 1991, Cologne had befriended a transient construction worker known publicly only as Strawberry. Strawberry. Cologne asked Strawberry to fly to England and kill three of the Adonis dancers by injecting them with cyanide. Strawberry later told ID interviewers he first thought Cologne was joking. When Cologne showed him the cyanide and needles, Strawberry was terrified. He pretended to go along with the plot, afraid of what Cologne may do to him. Cologne escorted Strawberry to LAX airport and watched him walk on the plane. As soon as he landed in England, Strawberry threw the needles and cyanide away in an airport bathroom trash can. He hopped a plane to Vegas, too afraid to return to L.A., and headed straight for the FBI office.
0: Yeah, Strawberry is his witness protection name. He's a redheaded older gentleman who was just like, I think, in a bar and struck up a conversation with Cologne. And then it's like, hey, you know, you want to make a little bit of money? Like, oh, yeah, sure. It's like, do you want to go murder some male strippers across the pond? And, Strawberry and, and like, in
1: such a bizarre and just sinister fashion injecting someone with cyanide. I imagine that's a very painful death as well. Yeah. And just to now you got to have access to cyanide. You're how you've got to physically get close enough to someone to stick a needle into them. It's all very personal. And perhaps Steve thought it wouldn't be as traceable as, you know, just somebody shooting A bunch of people in the head, but it's good for you, Strawberry. My only thing was I think you should have gone straight to the cops and given them the cyanide and needles. Let's not leave all that laying around just in a (laughs) trash can somewhere. But I'm glad you did go to the FBI and you didn't go through with it.
0: I know my only thing, whenever he ended up in England with the cyanide and then ditched it in the airport, I was like, did he think on the way back, he didn't want to be like, this isn't my cyanide. I'm holding it for a friend. Mm -hmm. Like if you're coming back through customs into the States, they're like, and what is this? And you'd have to explain because it was like white powder in a bag. They showed the cyanide. He had Ray Cologne had what looked like, you know, if you've ever seen like a giant like a 50 pound bag of dog food or a 30 pound bag of dog food full of cyanide just in his house marked cyanide because <laughs> Strawberry's like you want me to kill somebody bullshit let me see it and then he came over and was like oh no he's very serious and again now it's the chain of well Steve is willing to kill Ray is Ray willing to kill me now mm-hmm. that I know this so he was like oh I'm gonna he was like oh, I'm gonna lose him at the airport and Ray's like back then you didn't have a pre 9-11 mm-hmm. you didn't have to have a ticket he said he walked him all the way to the jetway Watched him get on the plane and watch the plane fly away. And Strawberry's like, "Well, I'm going to England now, like, because you he couldn't get off.
1: No, and the whole time, and that's a long flight to just be shitting your pants over what is going on. Just like,
0: sir, did you you want like a snack? Do you need to sleep? He's like, no, it's just me and my conscience trying to decide. And then yeah, he said he flew to the uh, the Las Vegas. Uh, he flew to Las Vegas because he quote knew where the FBI office was there, and he didn't have to look it up.
1: Oh well, you know. <laughs> I mean, if you, d- you don't have cell phones to be Googling stuff, I don't think the Internet's around, so you go where you know.
0: Go where you know. Plus, you get to go to Vegas. Win-win. True.
1: The story seemed wild at first, but the FBI agent took it seriously. He had Strawberry call Cologne while the FBI listened in. On the call, Cologne suggested if Strawberry was afraid to use the cyanide, maybe he could attack the targets with a hammer. Cologne was more than willing to discuss the plot openly on the call, not knowing the authorities were capturing every word.
0: Yeah, it's, I guess by that time, Cologne was pretty disillusioned with all of this mayhem that he would do on Steve's behalf, because he's like, Strawberry's like, I don't know, man, I'm gonna have to get real close, and he's like, just hit him with a hammer, just bash him with a hammer, and then they'll be out, and then you could stick him with cyanide, or you know, just hit him with a hammer, and he's like, when am I supposed to do that? He's like, just go up to him after a show, and again, it's just horrible not even planning it was just ideas it was very bad ideas and strawberry's like oh, okay well i guess i'll try doing that but meanwhile ray was just freely speaking and i guess as the fbi agent you have this yahoo walk in and go i got a, a <laughs> conspiracy to tell you about the owner of Chippendales male dance review it's a murder conspiracy and you have to as an agent go all right let's see this
1: one through <laughs> <laughs> but then you're like my god he's right
0: 100 percent he goes uh, the the agent was like man, eh, you know after a while you kind of can get a bullshit detector and this guy was not bullshit and he was just like i got some weird stuff to tell you man And you're like yeah. all
1: right because you think what does this guy have to gain by telling us any of this stuff he probably has a lot to lose lose really so let's see what happens
0: yeah and was he willing to fly to england to come back and make a story <laughs> up
1: because you have like a stamp in your passport like i was just there yeah They're like, where's the cyanide needles? Well, you may want to call somebody across the pond because I dumped them in a trash can. It's also um, just very lack of self-awareness. And also, have you ever been to this show, Cologne, to be like, just go up to him after the show and just bash him in the head with a hammer? And then what? There's people everywhere and then run away and hope I don't get caught. Like no one was thinking anything through.
0: No, not at all. Well, and then by this time too, they have to call up the men of Adonis, and they go, "Hey, uh, this is the FBI." They call the UK police. The UK police goes, and "Goes just a, a heads up, someone might try to bash <laughs> you with a hammer at some point." And the and it sounds ridiculous, but at the time, Reed Scott was like, "Oh, probably Steve Bannergy's trying to kill me." Like it was just it wasn't I, a that's question. That's
1: what I'm saying. I imagine everyone's putting the pieces together of. Shit follows Steve Banerjee around and everybody's dying and coming up trying to, everybody's trying to get burned up. I don't, so if you get a call like that, yeah, I would immediately be like, well, yeah, he's probably pissed that I left and now I'm working for the competition. Yeah, and he's, like, he knew, obviously
0: knew where we were performing. It was very publicized where the Adonis shows were. He's, like, we would go back to our hotel rooms and, like, check every single, the shower, check the closet door. Because he's, like, who knows how, if he was just willing to hire that guy and that guy squealed. Now that murder didn't happen, is he going to go hire someone else? Yeah.
1: At some point, I think I would... Decide to take a different line of work, but they also shouldn't have to do that. They shouldn't have to give up what they enjoy doing, but they shouldn't have to be worried about getting killed every time they go on stage. With the recording of this conversation, agents had what they needed to make a move. Strawberry went into witness protection and Cologne went to jail. With Cologne in custody, the FBI worked with him to piece together what exactly happened. Facing down a huge possible sentence for multiple crimes across multiple states and countries, Cologne told agents that it was Steve Banerjee, the founder of the mail strip show Chippendales, that was behind it all. And that's what Agent
0: Gariola said. In he's given interviews on Investigation Discovery and on this podcast and several other places. He's the, I believe the only living person that actually worked the case. And he said when they initially, you know, Strawberry told him it was this person, Ray Cologne, because he, Strawberry didn't really. No, steve one-to-one so they said when they brought ray cologne in that he held up a sheet of paper and he pointed at the very bottom of the sheet of paper and went i'm down here the person you want and then he pointed to the top is up here and i I can give you everything he's done and then they said we are listening Oh, yeah, for sure. And especially, again, he's his now his kidney disease has progressed even more. So he's now really battling with health issues.
1: I don't want to live the last of my years in prison when I already look and feel terrible. I'd rather. Uh, what do you need to know for me to be able to stay at home and comfort mm-hmm. of my own bed? Cologne spilled on the earlier arsons, the murder of Nick DeNoia and the Adonis plot via a proffer agreement. In turn, the FBI informed the NYPD detectives who had worked with the Denoya case who their killer was. The FBI obtained a medical furlough for Cologne, which would allow him to be ankle monitored while helping the FBI catch Steve. Cologne agreed. First, they took him to the jail to meet with Louis Lopez. In a recorded conversation, Cologne got Louis to admit to killing Nick Denoya and describing just how he did it, even saying on tape, I saw the red dot on his
0: face where the bullet went in. So a proffer agreement is a thing where, you know, you get an attorney and they tell the FBI for a limited amount of immunity, my client will sit down and just spill. They're going to tell you everything now, if you're in the middle of a proffer agreement talking about crimes that Steve Banerjee did and you were like, "Oh, and then also by the way, I killed my neighbor unrelated, that doesn't that's not going to be count you know covered under the proffer agreement. but being, I will tell you all of the parts of this criminal enterprise that I was a part of as long as I get some sort of leniency for sharing this with you, then the FBI, especially in this case, when they know cologne is a low level player, they're like, "Deal, we'll take this deal all day long." and they sort of created this ruse that cologne was out on medical leave and then was the new ruse was going to be that he was just out on his own and the FBI didn't know where he was so that Steve wouldn't get suspicious because they needed to start. They said Steve was so paranoid that he would check everything all the time and that he did have, because he had a lot of money, he had connections so he could check if uh, Ray's name was flagged as a fugitive or not. Oh, yeah. And so they had it. The FBI said we flagged you as a fugitive just so you know. Here's identification. If you get stopped by a cop on the street or something, give him this fake ID so you don't get like pulled in. But they had to literally cross every t and dot their i because they felt like steve was super paranoid and was looking in all this ray was a good helper he tried his best when they went to go talk Mm. to louis lopez the first time there was an oopsie with the (laughs) recording device and he acts yeah apparently ray accidentally hit record at their office then it was like an hour and some change drive to the place where to the facility where Louis Lopez was being held has a whole conversation. They're listening on a transmitter. So back then it was all it was like two devices one recorded one transmitted so Agent Gariola was like oh I heard the whole thing on the transmitter I was like we're golden like I'm taking notes as a backup but we have a recording and he said they got back to the office they go take Ray home they check the tape and their whole entire conversation from Uh. in the office the drive to the prison (laughs) is what got recorded and then the tape ran out. So then the whole conversation with Louis Lopez didn't get recorded. So like three weeks later, they had to send Ray back again. And the whole ruse was, like I said earlier, the assistant, the whole ruse was, you have to tell me exactly what happened with the Nick Denoya murder because this assistant is now blackmailing us. He's saying he knows who you are. He knows who I am and he's going to go to the police and we're all because Louie was locked up on narcotics so he was going to get out relatively quickly and so they had to convince him so Ray has to lie to him and say this is all about you know we're being extorted so tell me again exactly what happened and so finally on the second one that's when they were able to get him to completely spill everything and get it recorded to basically tell the NYPD hey you can tell the family we've caught this person and he's locked up in california jail on other charges
1: so when people go to prisons and things are recorded is it recorded because they're talking on the phones like sitting across from each other with the plexiglass in between or are they face to face and one person just has a recorder and doesn't tell them they're recording the conversation
0: This one, sometimes it could be the first one. This one in particular, both times it was the second one. And the agents talked about how difficult it was in the early 90s because the devices were kind of big. They would have to cut like a pocket, sew a pocket in the shorts that Ray was wearing to hold the recorder and then put the microphones in his waistband because it's kind of standard procedure for them to like lift their shirt up and be like hey look I'm not recording us
1: yeah and so
0: it was just hidden in their shorts and so he had to wear it both times and they said the first time when he fucked the recording up the first time and the agents went to his house and were like are you trying to screw us did you do this on purpose they said he was completely devastated and was like no I'm so sorry I really thought we got it and from all of his interviews Gary was like I think Cologne felt bad about what he did and was trying to in his final days kind of as much as he could help out and unwind because he was extremely instrumental in all of these crimes. Yeah. And as much as you can kind of make amends, I think he was trying to make amends. He was just like, those recorders were hard to ma- uh, hard to use. That's
1: some shit I'd fuck up. <laughs> the So this is, I mean, this, I guess, related to this, but this was just a question I just thought of. When people are going in like this and the cops have said, go in, we need you to record this. I guess they have to give the people at the prison a heads up so they know not to pat him down and find stuff? Or like when they go through a metal detector, what if it goes off?
0: I the They didn't put anybody on notice. They said they had Ray Cologne come in as a visitor, I believe. I imagine if it's going to be something like that of like, I don't think that the tape recorder sets off the metal detector the same way a gun metal would, like our phones do, but an old, it was probably made of plastic and like a battery and a tape. I don't know that the circuit board in there would ding a metal detector as a gun would. Would
1: it today? Like, what do people do now? Is everyone in on it? That's what I'm trying to figure out. (laughs) Like how many people are in on like, if somebody's trying to get a confession out of somebody that's, you know, In prison, but you just want it on tape. How does that work?
0: For this, and I think probably for many, of course, I'm not an FBI agent, but I think a lot of when you're trying to catch somebody bigger, a bigger fish that you think might have connections wherever, whether it's in the mafia or, you know, any kind of organized crime or with maybe with the police or somebody that could feed information. They played it super close to the vest. Like I said, they nobody knew that they were working with Ray Cologne. He didn't tell people he was. They met him at different locations. They hadn't picked up or take the bus. They were really trying to keep it as if he was out because of his kidney problems with an ankle monitor and then Later on, you know, he's like, "I'm on the run," and so th- I think they were trying to make it like he's just going around doing business. And Steve refused to see him during this
1: time. It makes it even scarier because you're going into an already you're going into a prison to talk to a prisoner, and you also have the added like knowledge of if I get pulled over and patted down or something like this is going to get found. I feel like it's just a very high stress situation where you're all. I on do your think own. that.
0: Some prison officials knew about at least the second visit because there's video footage of this as well. It's like mm. through a bush. So you probably would have had to tell yeah. them, hey, like and tell Ray Cologne, like, go get him to sit on this bench over here.
1: Steve was not as easy to pin down. Unlike Lopez, who was willing to speak freely, Steve was constantly paranoid the authorities were listening. First, Cologne asked Steve to meet him in Rome. Steve's Indian passport prevented him from traveling there due to visa restrictions. Instead, Steve agreed to meet in Switzerland. I mean, it was down to Cologne was like stalking him where he had lunch to
0: try to like talk to him. And Steve would just shake his head at him like, no, like he just assumed all the time he was being uh, recorded. And well, Cologne was like hey, wrong, though.
1: He was 100 percent. I mean, right. he had a and lot they- of reason to be paranoid. And he was also Right. <laughs>
0: Oh no! And they got him in. They got into the bathroom together at one of these lunch places, and Cologne was like asking questions about Nick Denoya, who they called the D. That was the D for Denoya. Was like the murder. Hey, they're asking questions about the D, and Steve wouldn't speak. He would write his responses on post its, show them to Ray Cologne, tear the post its, put it in the toilet, and flush the wow. toilet, and then ask the next question. And that is how. I mean, there was nothing of him on tape, and so. The FBI goes, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll say you're on the run. So like I said, they flag Ray Cologne that he's like an international Mm -hmm. fugitive. They're like, we'll put it in the news that you're like this fugitive. It's going to be out. And we get they work with the Italian authorities. It's a lot because the FBI has no international jurisdiction. So they work with the Italian authorities like, okay, we're going to get him in Rome. It'll be great. And then they had to ask permission from D.C. It was this whole deal. They get it all set up. They get Ray Cologne. He's in Italy. He calls Steve. He's like, come meet me in Italy. And Steve's like, I cannot do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because of my visa, and then that's when Gariola says, I think it's on the investigation discovery. He's like, Oh no, because that's that was their plan, they worked all mm-hmm. this, but it turns out it works better in Switzerland. And the Swiss authorities were just as willing as the Italian authorities were like, Yeah, like, what do you need? Tell us, we'll set up cops, we'll get you a room, we'll get you wh- what can we do to help. And we're very, very good, uh, you know, neighbors, that's how they, even though that's they're not neighbors, that's how they
1: stay liked by everyone.
0: Right, and that's what the uh, Gariola goes, you know, they're, they're like clockwork. That's why they make the best that's clocks in the they, watches.
1: You know what? Also, great chocolate. Mm-hmm. The Swiss authorities had wired Ray's hotel room for sound, providing what FBI agent Scott Gariola called... Crystal clear audio. Once inside the room, Steve remained skittish, but Ray did what Gariola described as... A masterful job. ...getting Steve to calm down. The two spoke in their usual code calling the murder of Nick Denoya the D their meeting was briefly interrupted by a phone call ray did his best to put it off but steve was concerned asking who it was ray told him it was a wrong number in reality it was the fbi supervisor calling from the states to check in with the agents on how the mission was going
0: are you flipping kidding me <laughs>
1: somebody give this guy the fucking calendar and the <laughs> just the you know the bullet points of when things are happening
0: like don't worry about it and Gariola talked about it was a comedy of errors cuz he was at one hotel Steve was at the other hotel he Ray is like come to my room Steve's like no cuz what if somebody got the room next to you and they're listening in okay fair question so they're like let's meet at a restaurant so they meet at a restaurant meanwhile the swiss authorities are like okay we're gonna wire you up he said that the they had like way better technology than the americans had and he said we just let them run with it so they wire up ray's jacket he's totally ready goes into this meeting with steve at a bar in the hotel bar Takes his jacket off immediately. Puts it on the seat next to him. Buddy. Couldn't hear shit. So then, Gary was like, I walk in. And I'm like, making, trying to make eye contact and taking my jacket off and putting it back on. And taking <laughs> it off and putting it on. Damn. He was not picking up that message. So I left. So he's like, I was freaking out. And I just told the Swiss cop. I was like, we can't hear anything. This is a total waste. Like, what do we do? And the Swiss cop's like, well, I'll just shut the restaurant down. Hang on. And he just went and told the maitre d', like, you got to shut the restaurant down. And they just walked over and said... Um, I'm sorry, gentlemen, we're actually closing early. You have to leave. So then they go to a bar, which Gary is like, you can't hear shit in a fucking bar. But it took all that time of Ray like massaging Steve, breaking him down and being like, hey, uh, Gary Ola goes, Cologne had a lot of like one liners and was very jokey. I was like, come on, you're being crazy. You're being paranoid. Like, of course, no one's listening. The FBI can't even leave the United States, They which they don't have it international jurisdiction but they can leave the united
1: states but <laughs> yeah he they're like, allowed to get on planes and stuff <laughs> they're allowed to leave i would but yeah so to keep him calm while this just uh who's on first bullshit is going on says a lot too because if i were steve this would only increase my anxiety
0: yeah, first of all, like something weird stuff, like for no reason, the maitre D closed the restaurant yeah, early that's or sus. like you're in the the room and they're like, no, nobody here by that name. No, nope, nobody here by that name, too. You know, like that is so weird and sus and like, my God, <laughs> really, boss, really, boss, you're calling. You got to micromanage right now. No, and we're in the middle yeah. of shit.
1: Why are you in call somebody else that isn't in the room that might not be in the room actually in the middle of it all. Yeah,
0: that was, and that was a good point that the host of the FBI Retired Case File podcast made was like, what if Steve had answered? Yeah, I guess you're like, like,
1: oh, I'm looking for a blah, blah, blah. But still, <laughs> that, I, if Steve, as paranoid as he is, immediate red flag. Agreed. Honestly, as paranoid as Steve was, and with all this going on, he should have listened to his gut and said, I need to get back to where I was and just keep my post-it thing going because that sometimes watching how things unfold on the big screen in Hollywood works out for you because I would not have thought I'm gonna write on this piece of paper then rip it up then flush it what are they gonna do they can't get they it, have it back have yeah honestly
0: it was genius and it was extremely frustrating to the FBI to where they had to literally like fly agents and techs across the
1: world to try to catch them yeah Because Steve knew that Ray was the only one connecting him to the many crimes, he would only speak freely once he was sure the two men were alone. Ray convinced him no one could hear them. Over the course of three hours, they discussed the arsons and murders for hire in their past. On the recordings from that night, Cologne asked a simple question.
0: Why haven't you been arrested yet?
1: Steve began to brag.
0: Because they don't have strong evidence yet. They don't have a proof that I gave you the money. They don't have a proof that I bought the gun. They don't have the proof that I gave you his address. They don't have proof of all that stuff. That's the reason I don't talk to nobody. I never say anything, so they don't have me on tape, because whatever you say will come back to haunt you.
1: And with that, the FBI had all they needed. Yeah. Well, he's, he's right. Famous last words, and you should have kept it up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. To and in addition to this, which we didn't even talk about because it was a failed plot, but at some point, Steve had a business disagreement with a doctor in Los Angeles, and had asked Ray to uh, kill to hire somebody to kill the doctor and his eleven-year-old son, God, and Danielle. that ended up falling through as well. But it was one of the many crimes that Cologne had talked about, and then they talk about it, and that it's like, wow, we've really had a wild friendship, haven't we? Beginning with that very first arson back in nineteen, 19- you know what I mean? <laughs> like he just had to walk him yeah. through it, and that's what Gary was like. Honestly, I was impressed because. At some point, you're like, why are you bringing up every past crime we've ever done? But he said he did it in such a friendly, loose, like joking way that it really let his guard down to be like, and I think this was Cologne clearly knew Steve's personality because Steve wanted to look like the big, smart man. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm the one to be like, you're amazing. How have you not been caught? And then he just
1: gave it all away. And what's fun of committing all these crimes if you can't brag about it? You know, I think it. I think that's how Steve thought about it because, yeah, he wanted to be this big mafioso guy. He did not look the part at all, and so when people are like, "Oh no, he's just some unassuming accountant-looking guy with big old glasses," he's like, "Nah, bitch, I'm the motherfucker running the show." He's eventually his his uh, vanity got the best of him. Oh yeah, that ego. The ego is the biggest snitch of all. Before Steve left, he gave Cologne another $7,000, bringing the total funds he had given him over the years to around $250,000. After that, Steve returned to his hotel, then headed to Geneva the next day, inviting Cologne to go along. Cologne declined and headed back to New York, where the FBI could keep him safe and he could continue pretending to be on the run from authorities. Meanwhile, the FBI was building a case against Steve using the recordings, Once completed, the transcripts were presented to a grand jury, and Steve Banerjee was finally indicted for his crimes. Steve was arrested on September 2, 1993. He was denied bail, based on statements he made to Cologne while the FBI was listening, saying that he could get out of the country with ease. During the next few months in prison, an angry Steve reached out to criminal contacts and attempted to have Ray Cologne murdered as well not knowing Cologne was safe under FBI monitoring back in New York. Steve was also charged with murder in New York, but remained in California on the pending federal charges.
0: He could not help himself from inside prison. He's trying to get Ray Cologne killed.
1: He can't stand having somebody not be under his thumb. He's got, you know, I mean, he's just, it's gotten to where it seems manic panicked behavior of just we'll take him out we'll kill him well oh they disagreed with me we'll kill him and kill his family he's just yeah. killing people left and right or trying
0: to allegations were that he was significantly into cocaine usage in these years but then i mean he's in jail so you ain't i assume not doing cocaine in jail
1: i don't know i imagine there are people that do it but yeah i mean but also i think he's just he's just panicked everything is just a reaction. Yeah,
0: and I think it was Agent Gariola called him like a megalomaniac. He yeah. said he was
1: just like, everything's
0: about him. He, like you said, everything had to be under his thumb, had to be in charge of it. But yeah, Cologne, meanwhile, they had again flagged him. So he was listed in anything Steve could have checked. He was listed as a fugitive, that he was like missing fugitive under the law. But really, the FBI and uh, Gariola's like, yeah, we hung out a lot. <laughs> we spent a lot of time together. <laughs> I mean, you could tell he genuinely, and I believe it was. Gary Ola's brother was a uh, acting teacher and Cologne had taken classes from him. So it's oh. like they kind of had this like weird yeah. Los Angeles connection. And he's like, you know, they, it's not like they were best friends, but it sounds like he genuinely appreciated the assistance that I mean, Ray Cologne hated on this whole case. Mm. Oh, so yeah. they had to do their work, too. But having that kind of, yeah, we'll protect him like we, he's he's done it such a solid.
1: We're not going to just like throw him to the wolves and let Steve's, you know, assassins get him. In September of 1994. After spending a year in jail, Steve made a deal with the U.S. attorneys. New York would drop the murder charges, and Steve would plead guilty to federal RICO charges under the statute meant to combat organized crime. He offered this in exchange for a 26-year prison sentence. The two acts he pleaded to were the arson at the Red Onion in 1984 and Nick's murder in 1987. The RICO charges also alleged that Steve used Chippendales to further his criminal enterprise— This meant that the ownership of Chippendales and all of its assets would revert to the U.S. government as a result of the plea deal.
0: This uh, was a huge get for them because, you know, they could have just charged him with one or two crimes, you know, in California and then the murder in New York. But instead, under this federal charge, it absorbs everything that you've done to further the criminal enterprise over the past 10 years. And he had done... The 1984 would have been like the 10 year look back mark for one act. And then 1987 is like the five year look back mark for another act. And so he was they had him dead to rights for the the Rico stuff because it was very clear that he was using the money he got from Chippendales to in turn pay Ray Cologne oh, to go sure. burn. Yeah, burnout clubs. And that's all they had. To, I mean, if you trace back the money, he was sloppy. And so he was, you know, just using company funds to to do so much crime. But it's the same place. Yeah, this is a crime they use for the mafia, Hells Angels, all that kind of stuff. So,
1: so he was charged in New York by NYPD for the murder of Nick DeNoya. But then also he was charged federally by the U.S. government for the murder. So the NYPD just drops their murder charges so they can just go with one murder charge. Well, so it's kind of two different
0: things, which is annoyingly nuanced. So the state charge is for the actual murder for hire, the exchanging money to kill a person that is state, you know, in Texas is capital murder. Now the federal charge is that you ran a criminal enterprise and then they just have to prove that certain acts were criminal, that you did those acts in furtherance of this larger enterprise. So murdering Nick DeNoia is a crime and that proving that he did that crime or him admitting that he did it goes to show that Chippendales as a whole was a criminal enterprise. So it's two different things. In one case, you're trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he paid the money It's at the state level that he paid the money to do the crime, and then he goes away for just that one single thing. What the federal government is a much, much bigger basket of crimes, and they just have to say we can prove that within the statutory time required timeline that you did these two crimes, and one of those being the murder of Nick Denoya because we have you on tape saying that you did it. And so I think for the state they say okay he's cop to the charge at the federal level it's a bigger charge we will defer to the fbi that it's a he's still going to end up in jail yeah the family he still admitted that he did the crime and the family gets an answer of who actually pulled the trigger and was part of it and
1: you get his business wrapped up in one little nice package of saying we now own this because this is a criminal enterprise
0: They sure thought that's what they were going to get. But uh, the amount of legal filings that I've read between Steve and Irene, they were they were doing a little concocting of their own, maybe a little fraudulent transferring. Mm -hmm. On December 24th,
1: 1994, just one day before he was to be sentenced, Steve Banerjee died by suicide in his cell at the Metropolitan Detention Center. Since he was never formally sentenced, the ownership of Chippendales did not go to the federal government, but instead stayed with Steve's wife, Irene. Steve likely knew this outcome, according to Agent Gariola, as Steve had a sophisticated criminal defense attorney. Steve also told Ray Colon on the FBI recordings that he would never go to prison due to the shame he would bring to his family. Well... It seems like he had that all planned out so his family wasn't left with nothing. And if he and Irene were kind of doing things on the back end, I wonder if he told her, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, so there wasn't a big surprise. Maybe they got to say their goodbyes, but he, as the last... Kind of thing he could do for his family. He's like, Well, I don't want you to leave you all broke and uh, you're already going to have to deal with the reputation that I'm leaving behind. So here's the business.
0: Yeah. And here's, you know, something to take care of the kids. It's interesting because they claim to be divorced and then another time they claim they were only just separated. So it le it begs the question, how divorced and separated were they ever if or was that all stuff done to maintain, I'm a separate person from Steve, I own the business myself, therefore, you know, Steve, and I think that that might not have withstood scrutiny had he been sentenced formally, but because he was never sentenced, there's no, there's no conviction. He was never yeah. convicted of anything. The government can't even start to try to seize the assets even though they had his plea, but he was, it, it doesn't, the stamp, the finish stamp isn't put on it, mm-hmm. and like you said, you it makes you wonder if you say, okay, we'll get all this stuff in place and then tells her, you know, the final step of this plan is for me to die by suicide.
1: Yeah. It's the whole thing. When you really look at it is very sad and tragic that Steve Banerjee started out just, you know, from a middle-class family, but his dad telling him like, there's more to life, go out there and do stuff. And it just snowballed into something that was unmanageable and above everybody's heads. And, you know, nobody knew how to get a grip on it. What an exhausting life that must be to constantly be paranoid to constantly think either people are out to get you, or you're out to try and get other people. How can you possibly have a, a healthy relationship at home? I can't I mean, it's so stressful for everybody. And then this is how your life ends.
0: Well, and you, what I ask myself, because at this point, the his daughter was born in 85 and his son was born in 90. So he died by suicide in 1994. So you have a nine year old and a three year old. Do you think those kids would say, I would rather have $2 million than another day with you to talk yeah. to you? to be able to call you for advice, to be able to write you letters, to be able to work with you to write a book about your life, Mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, whatever. And it's so to me, so short sighted and so much emphasis put on the wrong thing, which was money versus what the true important thing was, like I said, I imagine I don't know this kids, but as a kid with a dead dad, I'll tell you, I'll give you everything I own and more to have one more hug from my dad, Mm -hmm. much less like something like this, where it's like, Those kids weren't going to be totally destitute. Like they probably wouldn't been all right, you know. Like you figure it out. They're not going to probably live in a cliffside mansion in Playa del Whatever and drive around in you know a brand new Mercedes all the time. But I didn't either, and I turned out okay. Yeah, you know.
1: And same can be said for Irene. I mean, because yes, they're going to get some money, but money eventually runs out. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. so it's a finite resource. Life is also a finite resource, but I think for him though the. Shame, he thought of like his that it would bring his parents, and also as far as shame to the family. I mean, I hate that that would be a deciding factor, but you've already gone to prison, they already know all the stuff, so the bad stuff's already come out. Then the next stage that's just you,
0: yeah. And my question is. Is it not shameful enough that you're running a strip club? Like,
1: Yeah, I mean, and like everything's already come out. So like anything to be shameful for it, like they know that you've been arrested because you hired somebody to kill your business partner. Like all of that's already come out. So you you don't want to face the shame, but for any like shame that you believe your family is going to now have in, in their own inner circles or whatever, that's already happened.
0: That's true. And he, because he had already pled and it was definitely in the news. It's one of those, it was kind of a trial by media because every single old newspaper headline and some of the New York Daily News really got, runs roughshod over victims of violent crime with their wacky headlines. Yeah. But the story had played out. Like you said, it was on every major newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, Chippendale's founder, his whole name, it was everywhere. But, and I think by this time his brother had moved to the States. So, you know, he still had kind of a family relationship that I can't imagine the brother's like, we will never love you again because of this. You know, it's like, it'll be all right, man. But to your point earlier, he spent a year and some change in there already. It may just be like, this is not for me. And I know that I'm staring down 25 more of these years. He would have had to do 80, uh, 85% of the Senate since it's federal. And he was in his, you know, he was born in 46, you know, almost 50. You're just like, no.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I think a huge chunk of it too. Yes, the money, that he wanted his family to have. But if you look at this whole entire thing, the core of it is he wanted to be Mr. Chippendales, the owner. He wanted that to be his legacy. And if it, if in the end it all goes to the government, then what was it for? You know, he's still, even in death, is like, we will maintain the rights to this of the empire that I built. Like you said, he wanted to keep it under his thumb,
0: no matter if it was mm-hmm. the government or one of his the DJ, you
1: know? Yeah. Ray Colon was given a sentence of just 10 years for his cooperation with the FBI. He continued to struggle with health issues and served his time at the Springfield Medical Center in Missouri. Ray died in 2002 of heart and kidney failure. Based on the recordings obtained by Ray, Louis Rivera Lopez was tried in the summer of 1996 for the murder of Nick Nanoya. Louis tried claiming the tapes were all part of a movie that Ray had written, according to FBI agent Scott Gariola, The jury was not convinced. Louis was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life at the Attica Correctional Facility in New York. He died in prison in 2012. Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to buy that this was a movie. It does sound like a movie, and a lot of adaptations have since been made, but unfortunately, this was real life.
0: Yeah, and the recordings weren't, all right, Louis, uh, you're go ahead and you start from your first line. Yeah, I,
1: It was exactly. very
0: clearly, and also Ray Cologne testified and was like, no, I didn't write a movie, absolutely not. And that's when Gariola said that by this point, Ray had, his kidneys were so bad, he had to go to dialysis and was staying in this apartment. I think the trial was like three weeks. And he's like, yeah, we like hung out, we took him in dialysis every day. And like I said, I think that's when you kind of bond with somebody is that, mm-hmm. you know, they're still willing to show up even as sick as he was living as far away. It's not that he was like choosing to live in Missouri, but you know, being locked up as far away as he was, you know, still willing to show up and, and testify. But yeah, a bold strategy that did not play
1: out. No. Steve transferred ownership of Chippendales to his wife, Irene in July of 1994, three months before his death on November 11th, 1994, just weeks after Steve's death, Irene sold Chippendales to investors for over $2 million. On February 10, 2001, Irene passed away from cancer. The couple left behind two children, Lindsay, born in 1985, and Christian, born in 1990. FBI agent Steve Gariola shared the fate of the Banerjee children in an interview with retired FBI agent and podcast host Jerry Williams. Steve's brother-in-law, married to Irene's sister, was an FBI agent who worked in the Bureau's Los Angeles office. When Irene died, custody of the kids reverted to their aunt and FBI agent uncle.
0: Which is such a small world. And Gary Ola said this agent was completely above board. He was totally firewalled off, like had no idea the investigation was going on, had nothing to do with it. It was just happenstance that in the end, the FBI did take custody of Mm -hmm. the the two most precious things left, which were actually Steve's kids. But this whole, this one paragraph, my goodness. So... Uh, let me just briefly insert that the allegedly Steve Banerjee had a son when he very first moved to the United States named Jesus goes by Jesse and lost touch when they were when Jesse was three years old. This is according to his self-published memoir. Jesse's mom took him to Arizona, then parts of Mexico, then kind of moved him around with different family. And sometimes he lived in LA. And when he was about six, he re struck up his relationship with his father They maintained off and on contact meetings here and there. But in the back of this book, Jesse has put copies of as many documents as he has access to, I guess, or the ones that he thought were relevant. One of which was this bizarre post nuptial agreement I found that was dated around July of 1994. And it was... A lot of what we said earlier, Steve was trying to be the smartest guy in the room, and it was as if once he was arrested, he thought, boy, I probably am not the smartest guy. Let's start calling some lawyers in. So the lawyers came in. They write this postnup that says, everything after this date, if we've ever had a prenup, we don't have it anymore. Erase it. Everything after this date, we're going to very clearly bifurcate what is and isn't community property. And if Chippendales was community property and Steve had any ownership and he was going to plead, the government would have gotten it. They said anything that Irene has, including her now ownership of Chippendales, is completely separate property. Steve has zero rights to it. He has no ownership. So he transferred everything to Irene. And then three weeks after he died, she sold it to, it was like CLP Enterprises, which the signature on one of those documents, Lou Pearlman, who created the Backstreet Boys and Oh wow. Weird stuff. He's just in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. But part of all of this fraudulent transfer is you now have the Denoya family who's like, Hey, wait a minute. We'd like to sue for wrongful death or whatever. You also have the three dancers, the men of Adonis guys who are like, wait a minute, but Steve dies, no will. And you say, well, he didn't own Chippendales because in July, six months or three months ago, he, gave, he sold ownership. To be fair, they did like an arm's length transaction with money. But Steve also had these other debts that he owed. So it was like almost the right amount of money to pay off these other debts. So he dies, quote unquote, with a bankrupt estate. And you just go, oh, by the way, the government wants some tax money too. His estate's totally bankrupt. Irene is divorced from him by now, allegedly. Irene now owns everything because of this agreement they made in July 94. She can sell it in... November, a couple weeks after he's dead, and then just take the cash, and it's completely out of the touch of the Denoya family and the Adonis dancers. So then they sued, alleging all oh, that was fraudulent. And for some and the sale to Backstreet Boys guy, Lou Pearlman, was fraudulent. The court disagreed and said, no, based on the paperwork, this was an arm's length transaction between two people who were married. Irene had worked at Chippendale, so it's not unreasonable for her to buy it. And for some reason, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed. And so the families were left unable to collect against Steve because they had done these sophisticated legal maneuverings uh-huh. in the months while he was incarcerated.
1: Two million seems very low.
0: And it was like, it's hard to say how much it really was. It was like $1.8 million plus the assumption of some debts plus a $25,000 maybe a month consulting fee for the rest of her life well of course she didn't live very long so it's one of those like how do you really value a deal if there's a tail to it that Well, if, you could
1: but if it had been evaluated at 38 million dollars or whatever that was it was bringing in with the touring and everything
0: well i imagine if you're a savvy business person you come in and go oh i'm sorry was your owner just arrested for rico right yeah i'm here to buy
1: take what you can get
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, scraps. You're like, I'm here to pick up the name Chippendales mm-hmm. and the trademark, which that was another big fight in court, the trademark of the cuffs and collars. Like, I'm here to pick up what's the only thing valuable about this is the name that you've created and like what that that cachet that comes along with it. And that's what they wanted. They didn't want, you know, they don't really want the dirty old shitty club. Yeah. They, they might want some of the employees maybe, but like yeah, they're not. So
1: and if I were Irene at this point in life, I'd probably be real exhausted with everything and just want to be done with it and just wash my hands of it. I think so,
0: especially because she had no idea that Steve had a a, a kid from a previous relationship until Steve was arrested. And the kid from the previous relationship did not know that he had a stepmom and two half siblings until the arrest. That's how Steve just straight up lied to everybody. Yeah,
1: he's living multiple lives. According to the New York Post, Irene and Steve's son, Christian, is now a male exotic dancer and has started his own company called Strippendales. He told the Post of his father. People have a lot of opinions
0: and that's fine. He was a good guy. I've always had this connection with my dad, even though he wasn't living through Chippendales. I think he'd want to push me in this direction. He'd want
1: to continue his legacy through his son. The story of Nick's murder in the building of the iconic entertainment empire has spurred several media depictions. A&E produced the four-part docuseries Secrets of the Chippendales Murders, while Investigation Discovery's four-part docuseries was called Curse of the Chippendales. The book Deadly Dance, The Chippendales Murders, was released in 2014, written by K. Scott McDonald and Patrick Montes-Diaca. In 2021, Gimlet Media produced a nine-part podcast series about the crimes called Welcome to Your Fantasy, hosted by historian Natalia Petrozella. Hulu's fictional version of the story, Welcome to Chippendales, debuted on November 29, 2022. Starring Kumail Nanjiani as Steve Banerjee and Murray Bartlett of White Lotus fame as Nick Denoyen. Nick's close friend, Candace Myron, told The Sun she had low expectations for the series, saying, They've studiously avoided talking to
0: anybody. I doubt there's any accuracy in the entire film. From what I've heard from the plot lines, it's old, it's knee-jerk reactions. It's nothing like the truth at all.
1: The series received moderate to favorable reviews from critics who generally panned the writing but praised the acting of the cast, specifically Nanjiani.
0: Now that we've finished covering I actually probably will go and watch it just to see what how they covered it, like I said, I didn't want to get confused with the, what sure. was
1: fake and what was real. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Nick DeNoya's contribution to the success of Chippendales and entertainment as a whole cannot be understated. Nick's nephew, Tom, told interviewers.
0: My uncle took the show from nothing to what it became.
1: Attorney Bruce Naheen echoed that sentiment, telling A&E producers.
0: Without Nick DeNoia, there'd be no magic mic. There'd be no thunder from down under. There'd be no Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live.
1: To this day, Chippendales runs seven nights per week at its residency in Las Vegas. So what do we think? And they still have a
0: 2023 calendar as well for any of y'all who are interested.
1: Next time we're in Vegas, we might have to make a pit stop. Oh, for sure. Uh, I, th- I
0: mean, we covered a lot of what we think throughout, just as far as, you know, greed being the motivating factor. Mm-hmm. I do find it fascinating that both Christian, in the many interviews he's given with Vice and uh, the New York Post and different places, he ha- they have, uh, and with Jesse in his book, they have this really weird, perfect like this kind of like I'm trying to think of the right word like exalted hero Mm -hmm. on a pedestal that their dad was amazing Jesse thinks that possibly the mafia killed Steve in jail that he didn't really die by suicide he was also understandably very frustrated that he was completely uh, disinherited essentially because Steve passed to Irene the one big piece of value kind of that he had that wasn't community property so he really got he got nothing when his father passed away but it's just odd to hear Both Christian and Jesse, they're both attracted to the nightlife. They talk about being club promoters, having their own strippendales. I want to say Jesse's was called like Posh or something, you know, a male dance review. It's just like interesting seeing how disastrous it was for your dad that he was willing to literally die for this and literally kill for this to be going into the same field. And it may just be a way to feel close to Mm -hmm. a person who you were stripped of having a relationship with.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I wonder if that even occurs to them. You know, it might just be like I wanna continue the legacy and you don't really think that far ahead, or you think it's a different time, I'm not gonna get in over my head, but I don't think anybody goes into that thinking, Oh, this is how it's gonna end. Oh, for
0: sure. And as far as Nick Denoy, I think both Bruce Naheen and Nick's nephew Tom and you know and Candace Maron, everybody that talked about him was right that he took what was the photographs before Nick Denoya was in there. It was some cringy dancing. It was like a, a hokey, funny kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think Nick turned it into sexy entertainment. And exactly what Bruce said, because Chippendale's paved this way, you really can see that it was the proximate cause for Magic Mike, LaBear's, the guy dressed up as Jigsaw <laughs> at the strip show. You know, where people have taken that, I, that base, that base Solid foundation of stripping as an entertainment as uh, maybe making it into something that's, you know, story based or something like mm-hmm. that and combining sexiness with romance and fantasy versus just pure out like raw porno you know like dirty sexiness I think adding that artistic flair that artistic touch really was revolutionary and I think until we covered this I had no idea who Nick Tenoya was I'm glad I do now Mm -hmm. and for us not to like any media we consume it's like oh there's probably we're standing on the shoulders of somebody a while back and that person happened to be Nick Tenoya and I think it's extremely sad that he gave what he gave and he was I mean I think he was well compensated for it but he gave what he gave but not at the expense of his life I don't think he I don't think he as much as Steve Banerjee would be willing to trade his life for money. I don't think Nick would have been. I think mm-hmm. Nick was there to he was ready to leave, create US Mail, you know, have a a more uh, a less manic, frantic, crazy work environment, but unfortunately Steve just couldn't couldn't let him go.
1: Yeah, uh, Nick really took it from like community theater to a Broadway-type performance and revolutionized the industry and he's not a name that probably a lot of people know i certainly didn't but then when you do think like yeah we wouldn't have all these major things like magic mike or even the trope of like Chippendale. you know i mean the snl sketch that's so good still so one of my faves um but yeah it's a lot of times you don't know who's really behind things until we cover stuff like this so i'm glad that his name is out there more like this guy was just as much, if not more, of a responsible for the success of Chippendales.
0: Yeah, and I think arguably, you know, he came into an established insofar as they had a club space and they had the idea of a male dance review. So on that flip side, you know, Steve was smart for taking that initial ideal from Paul Schneider or from another club, wherever he got it from, but... I am glad that we have been able to talk about Nick DeNoia and talk about what he contributed because this is something that's ubiquitous and we should all know who was behind it. And, you know, sadly, what he, I don't think, willingly gave up, which was his
1: life. Yeah. For that legacy. Yep. Well, that's our two-parter. If you're in Vegas, check out the, check it out. See what's, what's going on. If it's, I, I mean, I absolutely would. Not for the... Sexiness because to me, I don't, it doesn't do anything for me to have half naked men gyrating on me that aren't my husband. I don't, you know what I mean? (laughs) Or that are my husband. I mean, no, that's not to say I love Tommy, I think he's hot as fuck, but it's just, (laughs) it's a weird thing to have somebody like on your lap in your face, like doing that. It is, uh, for me,
0: for me. it definitely, it's like you said, you don't want somebody serenading you with a guitar either. No,
1: I get really uncomfortable about that kind of stuff. So, if that's your thing, I get it, but I totally would go just for the showmanship of it in the in the show. I want to see I'm it. I'm
0: fascinated to see if they still do all the different like characters yeah. or they have themes and stuff. And yeah, it's like when I went to Bears and saw the guy dressed as Jigsaw. I'm here for the wacky experience. The I story. like to say yes. I, I do any kind of experiences and we'll just say yes and go places. So, the next time we're in Vegas, we're going to trip um, Absolutely, it's yeah. happening
1: It's iconic. You gotta go see, and it's iconic, Nick Denoya, because of Nick Denoya. Well, we love providing sinisterhood to you at no cost. So, if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker,
0: membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves getting into a tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. Like Christy said, we uploaded the video of us going uh, month by month of the Chippendales calendar. We also, before that, we did a True Crime Headlines on the Moscow murders, talking about Brian Koberger and the probable cause affidavit. We did a legal breakdown of that. Also, your December mini-sode was a Murdoch murders update, and our January mini-sode is going to be part two of that update as we discuss the trial, which is starting in just a few days. Patrons in our Getting Into It tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month. They would like for us to to live stream. The bonus content live stream this month is going to be January 31st at 8 p.m. Central.
1: You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast where you can ask us all your burning questions. This month we're doing it a little bit different, so our listeners over in the UK and Australia have a more reasonable time to be listening to these things because we're in central time. So over there, it's like 2am in the morning. And you guys, you get up, you listen, you log on. And I'm like, this is amazing. We also though, want to give you guys the uh, option to do it at a reasonable time in your time zone. So this month, it's going to be Thursday, January 26 at 2pm central time.
0: So during the day for you here, I say, if you're at work, just log in secretly. No one will see. Yeah. Uh, But we do thank for the months and months and months and months that all of our international buddies have been. When people say, it's 3 a.m. here. What's up, everybody? I'm like, God bless you. Thank you Uh for doing that. Right.
1: And if you can't watch at the times they're happening, you immediately get to see the replay right after. And we also rip out the uh, audio only so you can listen to it uh, in your car and stuff. Absolutely. For our patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you
0: the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership.
1: For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-outs. And
0: for our thank you corner. Yes. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Shop on the top banner.
1: The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner and share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting sinisterhoodcom playlist. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure.
0: You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod, like us on Facebook
1: at Sinisterhood, and check us out on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. Christy you on the computer. I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather?
0: I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world, and I am on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world.
1: As always, the devil rules the airwaves.
0: Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs Becky Pittman,
1: Sarah C. Hughes, Beverly Remy, Jacob Hanna. Wendy Steer. Emily Guidos. Jamie. Stacy Nelson. Paula R. Kara Downs. Fallon Mosia. Zara. Elizabeth Kirchner. Kat Foster. K. M. Brecht. Kelly Rogers. Casey Davis. Whitney Hain. Lauren Pring. Lena Monselli. Danielle. Katie Doricott Schumach. Jessica Olson. The Way Back Recap. Rosalind Turner. Stephanie Borden. Anna. Brittany, Sierra, Anna Bailey, Samantha Warner, Lauren Lambert, Natalie Eberling, Tara Cow, Heather. Well, thank you all so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We sincerely appreciate all the love and support. We have some thank yous to give before we officially sign off. I would like to thank Karen for sending
0: us this amazing cross stitch. I'm going to post a photo. On our social media, on our Fan Art Friday, it is some of the most incredible cross stitch I've ever seen. She wrote us uh, an email, which is very appreciated. She says, I created the pattern myself this pattern is incredible. It's our theme song Mm -hmm. and it says a bump in the night and night has a little star charm on it. Your heart feels, and it also has a moon charm and then your heart feels with dread. Dread is written kind of like bloody Mm -hmm. and then uh, it just goes on from there. So each little uh, like, Witch's Curse has a little cauldron with love little it. bubbles, and it's in this lovely display case. So, Christy and I are fighting over it right now.
1: Uh, <laughs> Heather? We're decide. No, we're going on record saying Heather said I could have it for the new studio. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, initially I said, well, I guess we're going to have to find a place to hang. And then Christy said, well, we can hang it in my new studio. And I think that's the most perfect place for oh, it. it. It will have Thank a prominent, you. a prominent location because it's so beautifully framed. And it also says in tiny little words at the
1: bottom, I'm going to kill you. Karen, I'm so happy this gets to go on my gallery wall in my new studio in my new house, which we'll be moving into in about a month. So, very honored to hang out there. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of you who support us. We could not do this without you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. ha. <laughs> Sinister